Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our second special episode, our quarterly investment mastermind. This is the second episode in this series that we're doing with myself, Manish Kataria and Adam Lawrence. The idea of this is we each pick an investment, we discuss its pros and cons, and then we track those over the course of a year. These are really kind of more long-term investments. So where there's volatility, I'm just getting my excuses in now, by the way, because my last quarter's Pick didn't go too well, <laughs> but it's a long game. So yeah, just bear that in mind. Um, so welcome, guys. How have you found the last couple of months? Yeah, personally, it's been interesting. I enjoyed the fact that you celebrated on social media how well you were doing, Rod, and that was pretty much the start of the slide. So. It, it was such law, wasn't it? As soon as I, <laughs> as soon as I got big-headed, it all, it all came crashing down. <laughs> but yeah, it's been, and that's exactly what it's been like, hasn't it? It's been very up and down. The market can't make up its mind what it really wants to do. Lots of chatter, funny summer for the UK in terms of, you know, not prime minister, not really doing anything at all, which you could argue he did that most of the time, obviously. But, you know, six weeks of moratorium where we had debates and all the rest of it. And then, of course, everything completely eclipsed in the last sort of 10 days by the passing of Queen Elizabeth. So, yeah, it's always a funny thing, the summer season. But what do they say? Go away in May and come back in October or something like that. You can understand why when it's like this. Yeah, absolutely. Manish, how have you found things? Yeah, pretty much the same, really. There's been lots going on and on the economic front, on interest rates. Inflation has just remained super stickier than we'd expected. I know Adam's been talking a lot about that and, you know, he's, he's absolutely right. And he, well, he's been right for a long time. You know, it's stubbornly sticky, which is causing the central banks to talk tough, act tough, and markets have been, you know, reacting with with a fair degree of volatility, especially in the US. The UK so far has been pretty stable, actually, given what's going on. And a lot of that is related to sterling. And, you know, we've seen sterling, you know, at, I don't know, multi-decade lows. And we've... 37-year low against the yeah. dollar. Yeah. So there's some really kind of historic things going on, you know, apart from all the political stuff going on. And we've got a new head of state, we've got a new prime minister, but uh, since we last spoke, and actually, you know, sterling is super weak. And interestingly, the oil price is now down below the level when Russia, you know, started invading Ukraine. So there's all sorts of unexpected things going on right now. And, I mean, can we just talk about interest rates for a moment and the difference between US and UK because obviously the US have jumped on the rate rises slightly quicker than the UK have but they both seem to be going in the same direction there's a lot of talk at the moment and we're recording this on Tuesday the 20th of September about this kind of terminal rate of terminal base rate that markets are looking at and I read today that they've priced in that that's 4.4 percent is that is that kind of breaching point at which 
things are going to come down. Do you do you agree with that, or do you kind of? I mean, for the US, and do you think it's the same for the UK, or do you think actually rates are going to have to go higher to quash this inflation that is kind of does seem to be sticking around a lot longer than markets thought they would? I can go first. They're going to go higher. They're going to have to go higher, and that's all predicated on what I've been saying, as we as we've just said. And and in all fairness. None of what I said last year obviously recurred around any dangers of any Russian invasions of anything, which obviously has supported inflation massively. But the problems are not no longer energy and food related. They're core inflation related, which part of my argument all along was that's how it was going to bite. They've just bitten a lot harder because of what's been going on. So uh, stronger for longer, I'm afraid, will be will be the message. I, I, I'll go overs on 4.4, 4.5. And for, the, for US and UK? Yeah, yeah, for both, because they've both got the same core inflation issues, although they're at slightly different points in the cycle and the, the distribution of goods and services and all that is different. And obviously, US has not got the same energy price problems and their problems that they did start to have this year were really predicated around the oil price. I'm a firm believer the oil price is going to absolutely rocket through the roof at some point in the next few years. And that's going to be based on, especially when China demand comes back online properly and there's simply not being enough supply. But at the moment, that's not where the, the oil price is. And that's helpful, obviously, to both the US and the UK inflationary positions. But at some point, that is going to bite and that will cause a further problem. This will manifest itself in an energy crisis that we'll be dealing with over the course of the 2020s, I think. So positive comments then from Adam. <laughs> we'll deal with it because the world deals with stuff. I don't mean to be overly bearish, but it will have an inflationary impact, which will have an interest rate impact. And what, what are your thoughts on that, Manish? I think as things stand now, given how inflation is is seeming to be sticky, you know, 4.4% does seem on the low side, not massively. I wouldn't say we're huge, hugely wide of the mark. But yeah, I, th- I think it does sound a little bit on the low side. I think we just have to be led by the data and as, as the Fed will be over the coming months. But as far as the UK is concerned, what's interesting is that the, you know, the UK almost are forced to follow the US, you know, not necessarily in lockstep, but they have to follow because if they don't, if there's a huge gap that develops between the two, what's going to happen is sterling is going to keep weakening. And when sterling weakens, that hasn't, you know, it, it just it just fuels the inflationary fire in the UK. So so they're almost forced to keep up with it, even if that you know results in inflation. It's not really going to matter. Where you know the, the bigger picture and the longer term picture is far more important to the central bankers than, than short-term pain, I think. And Manish, I think that's, sorry, that, that's a really, really good point, I think. And do you think it's worse than when we left the ERM, or do you think it's not as bad as when we left the ERM? Because we've got similar weaknesses in the currency to, mm. to sort of compare against. Yeah, I think there, there are some similarities. But, you know, what I would say is that the economy is, is very different. I mean, I mean, certainly compared to the 70s. And, and you know, th- there's been lots of changes, you know, the technology, supply chains, you know, the power of the unions. And, you know, I think, I think globally, um, the workforce has less bargaining power. And one of the big reasons why inflation got out of control in the 70s was 
you know, the unions, the unions and the bar, you know, the, the, the wages, the wage pressures were huge. And that was just set off a vicious circle in wages and prices. So there are some differences now compared to, you know, the 70s, 80s and 90s. But yeah, there are still similarities as well, I think. And, and I guess another point is this terminal rate or whatever rate that's going to go up to, that's one part of it. But the other part is how long will it stay up there for? Because when, when rates go up and they peak, quite often they break something, i.e. cause this recession. And the idea behind, I don't know, central banks is, is essentially that look, a recession is going to harm less people than inflation will over the long term. But how long will it stay up at that kind of terminal rate that does break the economy and, and put us into recession? Because it's unlikely to be a long time, because hopefully it does its job, really, which I don't know, central banks don't seem to be admitting to, but it's pretty clear that they, they're using a recession as a tool, really, to, to quell this inflation. I mean, what are your thoughts about on how long it might stay up there for? Well, Rod, first of all, I think the way you framed that is one of the things that makes the podcast so brilliant because that's exactly what we should be talking about, but what most of the press doesn't spend any time talking about because, you know, the peak is about headlines and, and sentiment and duration is really much more interesting and much more interesting, I'm sure, to the people listening to this much more relevant. So this is where I would diverge in my view between the US and the UK, and that would primarily be because because of the energy price cap that has had a quite obvious impact on the peak not being as high as it was otherwise going to be, all other things being equal, but the duration being lengthened thanks to the way that the cap will work. So there's pretty much consensus across economists that that's how it will manifest itself. So... In the US, they'll tend to say more, well, the Fed hikes things until they break. That's a typical way to break this cycle. And there is a soft landing possibility that probably sits somewhere between 5 and 10%, I'd say, where it doesn't have to be a deep recession. It can just be a technical recession, but it's quite unlikely. The Fed sort of set their, their stall out. They were late with starting the rate hikes, but when they started them, they were very aggressive. Whereas you feel more the Bank of England's kind of getting dragged along with everybody else and listening to the Bank of England commentary over the last couple of years, they've been quite clear they don't feel the economy can sustain higher interest rates for any particular duration at the moment. So they're doing it kind of against their will, whereas the Fed are quite happy to exercise the tools that central bankers have got at their disposal. So I think the Fed, the US is much more likely to hike till it breaks and these very quick small gaps between these big rate hikes are much more likely to be more problematic more quickly. And that's exactly mirroring how they dealt with both COVID and the financial crisis. It's very much the American way to go about things. Yeah, exactly. In the UK, I think longer duration, inevitable by the way that the cap has been addressed and the British way of central banking, if you like, as well. So that will lead to longer periods at the sort of three and a half, four, four and a half percent base rates plus that we're going to see, I think. And, and I guess we've got some some announcements on Thursday as well from the new prime minister about some of those things that she alluded to before about tax cuts and things like that, which obviously, if those things go ahead, surely that's going to pour a bit more fuel on that inflation fire as well. 
Well, that's a, that's another that's a good one. Obviously, the the difference in not enacting rises that have already been agreed, which I think corporation tax looks a a banker to be kept where it already is, in theory, doesn't change anything at the moment. It stops the fire extinguisher in April next year. Whereas really, we want fire extinguishers now. The change back in the national insurance contributions that obviously will be inflationary. You know, on the one side, it supports GDP from going downwards. And while she's been a bit rubbish for it, her comments around reviewing the bank's mandate are understandable. But I think any review of the bank's mandate will still lead to inflation control being the best way because it's worked so well for 30 years. And in many ways, you could blame QE and the temporary solution that went on for a decade, 15 years, whatever, as, as part of the big problem here, because this is more kicking of the can down the road. So, yeah, the fiscal event piece will be interesting. And we will see just how much ideology is driving this parliament. And that's my biggest concern, if I'm honest with you. We'll see. And the last time we did the podcast, we all chose equities as our picks. What, and it'll be, I'm very interested to see what, what you guys have picked this time around. What we're seeing at the moment is there's some interesting things happening with bond yields. And I just wanted to kind of touch on this because over the past, I don't know, like you said, 10, 15 years since QE's been happening, we've seen kind of bond, the bond market and equity market going up together. When we had bond yields at this kind of 1% rate, that seemed to support these high PEs. So you get like in, in your growth stock, so you'd have your... I don't know the Nasdaq would would trade at thirty times, kind of a, a, a price to earning of thirty times, and 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 that seemed to be supported by that one percent kind of bond yield. A year ago, we had the biggest gap we've had between value and growth investments. That was at an all time high, and now what we're seeing with bond yields is it well up until maybe a couple of weeks ago it looked as though the markets felt that bond yields were going to come back down quite quickly and that really gave the markets a bit of a push up the equity markets because they felt well it seemed to me that they felt well those bond yields coming down again will support those higher kind of growth stock earning price to earnings now it seems like that might be starting to change again the other way. What, what are your thoughts on kind of the bond yields and, and, and whether that supports growth or value, Manish? What, what do you kind of think on, on, on those points? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much the main indicator right now, you know, the, the main indicator affecting equities because, you know, bond yields are a function of interest rate expectations and inflation, right? Especially longer term bond yields. So you're referring to the 10-year yield which, yeah, it's, it's kind of edging back up towards kind of, uh, you know, multi-year highs. And that doesn't, you know, that doesn't bode well for technology stocks, right? Because technology stocks are very sort of growth-driven. It's got, they've got all of their profits at the back end. And when you have bond yields going up, that discounts their growth even more, which means you have a lower present value, i.e. lower prices. And so, yeah, that's certainly favoring value stocks. And in, in fact, you know, if you look back over history, Whenever you've seen inflationary periods, whenever you've seen periods when interest rates are going up, value stocks, you know, outperform growth stocks. And it's always been the case. And, you know, for those logical reasons. So that's why, you know, value stocks being financials, 
you know, energy stocks, commodities, kind of more old school, you know, old school stocks and old school sectors. Whereas the Steel new and concrete and yeah. yeah, basic materials, that sort of yeah. thing. Whereas the new economy stocks were, you know, were all the rage over the last 10 years, I would say. But actually now with bond yields going up, it's just turned itself upside down. So yeah, it's, it, you know, it depends on your view. I mean, there will be trading opportunities if it goes too far. Some of these technology stocks have gone down a lot. And if you look at the FTSE 100, it's pretty much a value market, right? Which is why it's held up. Well, some of those tech stocks could be argued that they've become value stocks. And that was certainly my kind of thought process when I chose kind of meta uh, last time was, it, I can't remember what kind of price to earnings it was trading at at that point, but it was about half of what it was doing a year before. And actually, it's still, I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of flogging a dead horse here, aren't I? But it's, it's still, it still kind of was, was giving off decent cash and things like that. So I guess it's, it, it's, it's very cyclical. And people often forget that actually, although growth has outperformed value in the last, I don't know, 12 years, there was a cycle before that certainly kind of after the dot-com bubble, where, where value out, outperformed, as you say. And I think what we forget is what I'm struggling a little bit with at the moment is that you mentioned the discount rate and how inflation periods, like you, when, when you've got, I think when you've got quantitative easing like we've had in the past, that reduces that discount rate. And we've had low inflation, low interest rates, that cycle seems to have come to an end at the moment. Whether it's the next the next phase is short or long, we've kind of already discussed. But will there still be QE happening? We know there's kind of quantitative tightening happening, but there's still a lot, a lot of kind of money printing going on around around the world. And I, I guess does that kind of does that does that change that thesis that actually because inflation is high at the moment, it's got to go the other way and value stocks should win. Yeah, it's not easy, is it? It's not easy because, and this is kind of why I think the market was calming itself down and then it's kind of taking these bumps upwards as inflation seems to conquer all others in terms of the feeling in the bond market. And as they accept the stronger for longer argument, you know, at some point I'm expecting... And this is part of why rates will peak a little bit rather than just the break that we were talking about. At some point, the market will over-expect inflation. And when we get there, the rates will be higher than they should be. And that will see us come back downwards as the market understands that. At the moment, I still think they're underpricing it. And that's why the shifts in the curve are happening when you see kind of near 50 to 75, even 120 basis points in relatively short periods of time. So we'll have to see what's happening, expectations versus reality, when the next inflation prints come in. Obviously, I'm not sure where that necessarily stops because we need to see core coming back down. And we're still seeing, I mean, we, it's funny, there's, like, there's kind of this narrative that comes out. So we've got lower unemployment than we've had for more than 40 years, I believe, in the UK at 3.6 at the moment. But it all gets washed away as, well, this is more inactivity. This is inactivity stuff. And they can't agree whether the inactivity is really people who've left in the Great Resignation, some of whom are being forced back to work because 
inflation is ravaging their savings and their income that they do have. Um, some of it is obviously long-term student academic star stuff. Perhaps people are training themselves more because there's a recession coming. Training tends to go up in recessions. So some of that's about expectation. And some of it is long-term sick. And how much of that is truly long-term sick and how much of it is facilitated by various benefit systems in various countries. Again, it's very, very difficult to tell. It's quite a, a thorny issue that people don't like to debate too often. Hello, everyone. I, sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to talk to you quickly about a sponsor of ours called Signature Property Finance. They are a bridging loan provider based in Solihull, Birmingham. The company also has regional offices in Cardiff and Edinburgh, which enable them to serve clients across the whole of England, Wales and Scotland. They were established in 2012 and Signature have two primary funding lines, private equity and a traditional debt facility via a high street bank. So what is it they fund and how can they help you? Well, Signature will lend against both residential and commercial property on a standard bridge with a maximum loan to value of 70% and 60% respectively for a term of between six and 18 months. They offer both a light and heavy refurbishment product, again, for a term of up to 18 months. Light refurbishment amounts to anything non-structural in nature, whereas anything involving structural changes requires a heavy refurbishment product. They will lend up to 75% of the lower of the purchase price or day one open market value. Signature also lend development finance up to a maximum loan of 5 million and for up to 15 units. The loan terms are up to 24 months and cover residential or mixed-use developments and they will lend up to the lower of 65% of the GDV or 80% of total costs. So why would you use them? In the words of CEO Tony Gilbertson, Signature do what they say they're going to do, provided the information given by the customer and or the broker on day one is accurate. The terms issued on day one will be the same terms that the customer draws down on. So if you've got any property finance requirements, please contact Tony Gilbertson at Tony, T-O-N-Y, at signaturepropertyfinance.co.uk. And there'll be a link to that in the show notes. And for a limited time only, they are doing a special offer for all Rodcast listeners. If you look to get finance with them and mention the Rodcast, you will get free legals for a limited time only. Yes, that's right. That's free legals for a limited time only. Just mention the Rodcast. They really are a fantastic company that do what they say they're going to do and act quickly. Back to the show. Interesting stuff. Right. I think we better get on with our with our picks. But before we do, I just wanted to give a quick recap of, of what we picked in the last quarter. So Manish did a option on XLF, which was a American financial services ETF. And that on when we recorded it on the 21st of June, had a share price of $31.38. It's moved up by 5.8%. So pretty good in that time. And obviously, he was earning an income off the option as well. Adam chose a ETF, an oil and gas ETF called IEO, which was tra- trading at $84.86. And that has gone up to $90.91. So an increase of just over 7%. So 
pretty good again. And he's already kind of just touched on his thoughts on, on that going up, actually, or, or, or the price of oil and gas going up in the next couple of years. And my pick was Meta or Facebook, which was at $157.05, and that's gone down to 148 so certainly I'm, I'm losing at the moment but it's like we say long term so it'll be interesting could even consider adding to that position at the moment but I'm not going to and I'm going to talk about that in my pick anyway so guys do we have any volunteers who wants to go first for this quarter's picks I'll go first um, go on Manish, go on, Manish. I, what I would say actually but you know our Picks. I, th- I think I mentioned it last time. You know, I think we had a bit of everything. We had value. We had you know commodity exposure. We had income. So as a portfolio, I think it was it's a great portfolio, and hopefully we have the same again this time around. And you know, your your stock rod. I I think it's a great long term pick. And when you've got sort of value and you've got longer term trends at play, you know, I think two or three months is a little bit short yeah. to make the judgment. So I, I think, you know, it's probably a good one over the next 12 months. We're definitely um, not trading here, so Yeah, we're not trading, absolutely. You want to avoid trading, absolutely, you know. These things are all long-term yeah. judgments. So this time around, I, I'm going to stick with my XLF because it's a great income play. And I'm, you know, I'm generating. And, I, and by the way, I, I should just mention to all, of, all the listeners that, you know, these are stocks I, I myself have positions in. So this is not advice, it's uh, full yep. transparency. I'm an own, owner of these, of XLF and the one I'm about to say as well. So, you know, XLF through options was an income play and, you know, it's generating 1.3, 1.4% a month. So so that's fine. I also wanted to add maybe a growth play, adding in some sort of income adding in an income angle into it as well. So I'm going to go with Microsoft this time to add to my existing position in XLF. So Microsoft, I like it. Again, I own it. It's a long-term play. It is a tech stock. So, you know, it could be subjected to kind of bond yields and all the rest of it. But, you know, I'm, I'm happy for the long term. And I like Microsoft because it's, it's a strong play. It's a blue chip name. It's actually one of only two names which have a higher credit rating than the U.S. government. And, and that's just a reflection of its strong balance sheet, strong cash flow. It's got about $100 billion of cash on its balance sheet sitting there. It's growing earnings. You know, it has grown earnings by double-digit rates over the last few years, also expected to keep growing over the next few years. It's got an ROE, return on equity, of 40% plus. So it's a, you know, it, oh, it's a very solid, dependable name. Yeah, it's got a dividend yield of 1%, but... You know, that doesn't account for all the share buybacks it's been doing, which is kind of another 2 to 3%. So overall, it's returning cash back to shareholders of in, you know, in the order of 3 to 4%. And it's dominant. We all know what Microsoft does. It's dominant in its field. Not to say it's not sensitive to the economy. If you have a recession, yeah, it, it will be impacted like many other names. So, you know, but I'm, I'm going to go with this. And again, I'm going to do it through an option. So right now it's trading at $244. I'm going to choose a strike price of 225, which is about 8% down from here. So that means I'm selling puts, strike price of $225. So that gives me an 8% safety margin. So I'm only going to, I'm only on the hook to buy this thing if it goes down to 225. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, I get paid an income whilst I wait. So I get paid 1.4%, I think it was, on a monthly basis. So it gives me that monthly income, gives me that downside protection. 
And, you know, it gives me that opportunity to buy below current valuation if it drops down to those levels, which I'm happy. I'm a happy owner of because, you know, I like it fundamentally. So that's my pick, Microsoft put options. And what's Microsoft's biggest kind of competitor? I guess it would be Google with kind of your Google kind of office suite and things like that. I I like everything you said about Microsoft in terms of its balance sheet, just how kind of robust it is as a business. The only thing I don't like about it is I don't use it because I use Google. And I just find that Google, for someone like me, who's really not very good at any form of tech, is much more user-friendly. And I probably don't use even one percent of its functionality and that is my only concern is is google i'd like to and i don't know the answer to this but is google starting to catch up on on the market share of microsoft in terms of what its main earnings are are from so for example is it from i don't know selling microsoft office um, and is the Google equivalent of that taking up more market share than that? And I, I don't know the answer to it, but that's my only real kind of concern mm. with Microsoft. Other than that, I think it's yeah. it's a great a great business. And, and like yeah. I say, getting it at 8% below what it is at the moment, I think it's already down around 25% from kind of its, 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 its 52-week high mm. or whatever it is. So... It hasn't, hasn't gone down by as much as a lot of the other tech stocks because probably very robust. So, yeah, that, those are my comments. But, yeah, I think, I think it's good. Yeah, it's a fair – just picking up on your point around Google, I think it's a fair point. You know, Google is a competitor, especially on the, on the sort of productivity apps, you know, Google Sheets and all the other, you know, the competitors to Microsoft Office. So – but it's still dominant. It's still dominant in that space. You know, it's got this subscription service now, which is kind of doing really well for it. But, you know, d- don't forget, Microsoft, it's not just about Windows and, and Office applications. Where it's been growing significantly and where all the all the growth and where the margin has been is in cloud computing. So so in cloud computing, you know, that's a huge long-term growth area for Microsoft. And and again, it's 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 the number two player in that space behind Amazon. And you know, between the two of them, they've got the market, you know, pretty well dominated. So that's really exciting. And actually, over the last four or five years, the market's been really excited about cloud computing and the future for that. So, you know, there are a few growth engines within within Microsoft, not just Office and, and Windows. And how do you think it's it's kind of earnings? What will happen to those earnings going forward if bond yields go up, as, as we kind of are probably expecting them to do? Yeah. yeah, it's not so much bond yields going up. It's more about the biggest sensitivities to a recession, I guess. So if you have a deep recession... You know, people will put off their purchases on new computers. You know, corporations will downsize and maybe not spend as much on on cloud computing, enterprise software, that sort of thing. So that's the biggest risk. You know, it's never going to go bust. It's so strong and and so robust. It's it's a huge, you know, blue chip in the US US market. It's never going to go bust, but its earnings, I mean, right now, for example, its earnings are expected to grow 10 to 15% per annum. You know that might grow at single digits, for example, right? You know, in which is crazy when you think about how big it is that it can still grow at that rate. It's mm. just nuts, isn't it? It is. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it is. And you know, but it's the, it's the cloud computing is where is yeah. where you know the, the the growth engine is, I guess, right now. And that's somewhat somewhat resistant to a recession because it's a secular 
trend that is going to have to happen anyway. But there's no doubt growth will slow down in a deep recession, for sure. Adam, what are your comments on Microsoft? Yeah, I think you guys have had a really great discussion there. I'm the same as you, Rod, in that I don't see all the products they have. When I think of things like OneDrive, it just annoys me because I use Dropbox and they were sort of first to the first to the party on that side of things. And so it's difficult to sort of in the long run, you know, I, I don't use Apple, but I respect the might of the iPhone. And I also see how much people think of the brand. And when you said who's their biggest competitor, of course, years ago, very clearly would have been Apple, but they've moved away from each other to an extent because we think about phones and tablets and earbuds these days for for Apple, whereas Microsoft, we're talking more about sort of software as a service stuff now and subscription models and, and cloud and what you guys have been talking about. I don't know that I don't know much about the cloud side of Microsoft compared to say AWS and how mighty Amazon have been in, in that department. And I worry that the software gets the you know the the, the brand side of it, Microsoft tends to be a, a source of annoyance to people that I talk to rather than a source of ease of use, which is what I would say about the sort of Google suite, because like your tech abilities, Rod, it suits my tech abilities down to the ground as well. And I, I do get concerned when I think about earnings growing at sort of 10 to 15% year on year, because if we go 50 years into the future, that's obviously not sustainable. There's the famous example of Cisco in 1999 being priced as if, if they'd gone on at the growth rate that was implied, they would have been bigger than the entire economy of the US by sometime in the mid 2030s, I think it was. And then, of course, that, that, that was, should be clear, that was the height of dot-com mania. And they were, you know, absolutely gigantic, but overvalued in terms of those future streams of revenue. But you can't argue with, you know, what was the most genius thing that Microsoft ever did? Well, it was controlling the platform and selling the most affordable computers that all had their software on, wasn't it really? And I, I saw the switch to Microsoft Office 365 and I thought, well, I'm not sure that's going to work because I knew lots of organizations that just stuck with the older software and they didn't, they didn't seem to want or need to upgrade it. But Microsoft are very clever at making Excel not work very well if you've got a non-subscription version of it. So it certainly keeps the, keeps the tills ringing. In terms of the comments around what would happen in the event of a recession, I guess you could argue that if people need to cut costs and keep things going, perhaps virtual machines are more likely to be the way that people will go. So that will be helpful. Are people buying more equipment now? Or, you know, computers these days don't really count as high ticket items today. So people aren't bringing those purchases forward because there's longer duration inflation, whether we realize it or not. This kind of depends how the recession manifests itself to an extent, because I mean, recessions mean that people start new businesses. You know, they might need to invest in new kit. Recessions might mean more people working from home um, on, a, on a longer basis, which again might mean more investing in new kit and new. I don't know where Microsoft are at in terms of I know they're doing some stuff around business intelligence these days. I'm not familiar with the software that they use, but I'm sure in the US there's, there's a huge take-up for it. So I don't know where their growth parts are. When you talked about Meta, you know, all of the component parts, was it 
27 or 72 businesses or whatever that they own. I can't yeah. remember. But, you know, all of those different revenue streams. I don't understand Microsoft in well, enough detail to know where the other strengths are, really, where the growth markets are. Again, I think some of the other things that's worth mentioning on Microsoft is is the gaming sector, which they, <laughs> they poured a lot of money into and purchased a lot of other companies in the same way that when we kind of talked about Meta was made up of various businesses the same can be said for Microsoft. And well, e-gaming is the fastest growing industry on the planet at the moment. So again, that's I think that's a really interesting space as well. So yeah. Just just on a related point, I my old HP was conking out and I was looking to go over to the dark side into to to guy to buy a Mac. And then I discovered the Microsoft Surface tablet and it nice. just works like a dream. So you know, that just strengthens my support for Microsoft. Yeah, it's a good alternative to a Mac if you're looking at it. Yeah, I, yeah I think I've, a lot of, I've heard nothing but good things about those, to be fair. I've always felt that iPads, Pros and things are more trying desperately to stay with Apple and be a bit functional, whereas the Surface Pro people have always said really good things to me about it as well. Fair comment. Interesting. Okay, awesome. Adam, do you want to go next? Sure thing. So I'm I'm sticking to my trend and maybe doing something I wish I'd done three months ago to an extent, but I feel we know a lot more now about where the market's still at. And I'm going to say picking deliberately on the five-year UK guilt, the best proxy that anybody could use for the mortgage rates that we are being expected to pay as property investors, because we tend to use five-year fixed rate terms on our mortgages. And I'm going short. So I should probably say, well, the same as Manish, obviously, this does not constitute advice. Do not short things if you're of a nervous disposition. It is not a good idea. Remember that old John Maynard Keynes phrase, the market can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. And even if I had been short a few months ago, there still would have been times where it would have been somewhat concerning because there is a, a force trying to get the yields back down that believe we will see that cheap money again. But as I've said earlier on, really, Rod, I'm pretty committed to the view that this will get worse before it gets better. And I think that will see the five-year guilt go the right way for me as a shorter and the wrong way, the wrong way for everybody else. Are, so, you, are you picking that? Is part of your kind of justification for picking that because it hedges... I guess the majority of where you're invested, which is in UK property, and that could be seen as a kind of a hedge against against that as well. I think that's a really good point. I think absolutely it fits really nicely within my portfolio because I gain here, I lose here. In the same way Manish is using some derivatives in a he doesn't really mind if he buys a good value stock eight percent below what it's trading at today. He also doesn't mind if he takes the 1.4% a month. Thank you very much. That's a very nice return. So trying to create something similar. And because the frictional costs of buying and selling property are so much larger. And also because when you get to a certain point, you know, it was nice to enjoy rate 2.8% on some mortgages. It was also nice to enjoy some rates at 3.3%. It didn't make a huge difference. It made some cash flow difference, of course. Whereas some stuff that I'm holding, 5%, it works okay. At 6%, I'm doing it for nothing apart from to stay in the game. At 7%, 
I've got negative cash flow. So unless there's capital growth, I've got a problem. So as we're starting to approach those sort of, you know, we've seen it in the US already, the 30-year mortgage rate going above 6%, first time since 2008, which which obviously concerns people. Again, we're not there yet in the UK in terms of where we've been stress testing mortgages for the last, all the mortgages written in the last sort of 10 years or so. But we're knocking on that door mm. at this point. And when we remember, everybody needs margin as well. So it might just be worth saying, Rod, the, the, what we usually talk about is the yield. The one I'm talking about here is going short on the bond itself. So the bond is made up of, the price, which will be £100 or £1,000 on maturity, and you buy it at a discount today on the basis that you get a coupon every six months, and then the yield is calculated from there. So we're expecting yields to rise, i.e. prices of bonds to fall, and therefore the short position makes sense. And what would be the duration of this short? At what point? Well, I mean, it's, it, you're forecasting here, but at what what we'll want to know next quarter is that are you are you calling calling that in or not? Yeah, I don't see I don't see the market waking up to all of this within three months. So we've already said, you know, we're not really trying to be trading here. Mm-hmm. I see this as more of a position that's going to be held over sort of nine to twelve months. There'll be a point where the market wakes up to reality. Or if we're if we're lucky with the timing of the recording of the podcast, Rod, there'll be a time where I say, look, I think everyone's gone too far now and it's time to not only close that position, but maybe reverse it completely because, you know, people have to remember how many willing buyers there are of what we're talking about today. As I'm looking, I'm looking at the, the, the yield right now, it's about 3.25% five years. If you've got a pension fund that's got obligations, that looks very, very good in comparison to where it's been over the last mm. six or seven years. And when yields go up, when the cost of debt goes up, the return on equity, again, all else being equal, has to be suppressed. So we've enjoyed, and this is what feeds through into multiples and all of the stuff that you mentioned earlier. You know, we've enjoyed, we've, we've got, someone said the other day, I quite like the phrase, we got drunk on the cheap debt. You know, we absolutely, private equity got drunk on the cheap yeah. debt. Now we've got to work for our living a little bit harder. But I think, as I said, as I've come across, Trying not to be overly bearish, but I think it gets worse before it gets better. So what would change your mind? What what would you need to see for you to have, for you to go, do you know what? No, now's the time for me to come out of this. Yeah, core inflation under expectations in terms of like a, a technical point or Ukraine-Russia conflict to come to a swifter end that I'm effectively pricing in with both of my picks so far, really, because... That will change the, the, the path of the oil side of things, and that will also change the resultant inflation because we'd see an organic deflation relatively quickly of some of the things that are pushing price because food and energy are not the only things. They are obviously the things that people feel the most, and they felt both of those significantly this year. But how it feeds through is by increasing wage demands, increasing the price of other products, Labour has got a, not the political party, the physical force, yeah. has, has traditionally had an upper hand following pandemics. And that in itself is very much playing out. So the tightness of markets and the non, the difficulty of a lot of these markets to come back to an equilibrium. If something changes on that front, so for example, let's say 100,000 long-term sick 
and or people who've quit their jobs suddenly come back into the job market and it adds 10% to the unemployment figures, then that, that will also change things. So there's a relative amount of sensitivity, but I think this is a, a sort of more of a, a short to medium term short that I'm looking at because I don't think the pennies will drop in the marketplace. Looking at the duration of how long so far it's been before the pennies have even started to drop, I think there's more to come and I think it'll take some time before everybody does. Because I still speak to people who go, well, you know, there'll be a recession and then the rates will drop again. Like this is some kind of self-evident truth, whereas what Manish said earlier is much, much more accurate. The central bankers will look after the long-term health of the economy and inflation before they worry about a recession. Well, you might get a recession with rates continuing to increase. This is it, very likely, yeah, yeah. Manish, any thoughts on shorting the the UK five-year guilt then? Yeah, I think, look, you said it there, Rod. I think, you know, you made a great point. And the fact that we're talking about portfolio level hedging, essentially, you know, Adam's active in property. We know that. And, you know, to have a hedge, to almost provide an insurance against, you know, his property exposure, that's really smart, especially right now. We don't really know where this is all going to end up, right? And there is tail risk there that inflation just runs away. We lose control. And interest rates, you know, there is an outside chance interest rates could be a lot, lot higher than even the most bearish commentator expects. So I think it's really smart. Two things I would say. So so from that point to be great. Two things I would say is if if you're expecting higher rates, would you would you not go with a longer term bond, Adam? Because the thing is, when you have, if you're expecting higher interest rates, you know, the sensitivity is going to work in your favor with longer term bonds because you've got higher duration there, just the way the bonds work. So that's one. And the second thing, I don't know if it's actually, is it practical to short UK bonds? You can do it, but I'm not sure how you'd go about doing it. I suppose you get an ETF and then just go short the ETF. And there are lots of ETFs out there, you know, related to UK bonds. So yeah, I think from a practical point of view, you just have to find something that is that you're able to short. But those are the two comments I would have. Yeah. Yeah, I think they're, I think they're both fair. I, I did consider longer duration yield, and I've got a few things going on that are more sensitive to sort of 10 or 15-year yields. Um, but I chose the five more for, more for the discussion that it would create. But your, your practical points are both, both very fair. Brilliant. Okay, so my pick is a it's an equity again it's called antofagasta or with the ticker anto it's a chile based copper mining group with interest in transport as well and it's typically the reason i've kind of gone for this one is copper is typically a good indicator of growing economies which seems very odd that we're on the precipice of a recession. So you might be thinking, well, hold on, that doesn't make sense. However, there's been a real low amount of capex that's gone into copper, very similarly to kind of like your oil and gas kind of choice last time, Adam. And also, it's got massive use in EV, in various climate change kind of uses and things like that that we're seeing. This company at the moment, the other reason I like it is what's happening with currencies. And although it's a FTSE 100 company, only 1% of its revenues comes from the UK, with the majority of its revenues coming from dollars. 
So with a strong dollar and a weak pound, I like that. I do think that you might think, well, the hold on, the pound is at its weakest in 37 years. That's probably a good time to for the pound to start going up. But I don't see it going up against the dollar, certainly in, in the next year. So I think there's going to be a bit more pain from from that side. So that's why I kind of like the, the theme of, of, of the equity there. In terms of it, the numbers, so it has dropped by 12% in three months, but it's trading at 14 times price to earnings. It's giving a dividend yield of 9.3% at the moment. It's had really good earnings growth over the last three years, despite having a payout rate of 78%. So only 22% of its earnings are, are, are reinvested. And it's still managed to have really good earnings growth. And that is really the reason why I've gone for this one. Well, I love I, I love I love a bit of base metal. So I mean, this is this is great stuff. This is it's quite addictive getting into these sorts of things. It does take a brave person to do it at the moment. But I do think your points around, you know, that the, the demand and supply constrictions are really, really interesting. I confess, I'm, even though they're in FTSE 100, I've not heard of them before you've mentioned them. But it's the what's the downside impact of the recession versus what's the longer term play? Again, your point, your points around it as a longer term buy and hold. You know, it's a nice cash cow with nice exposure to materials that look unsubstitutable in a lot of things that are going on at the moment. So. I can see, and I like the idea of pink. I mean, it's twenty-one percent down year to date. Just had a little look. Yeah, I like I like the idea of buying solid stuff when they're twenty-one percent off the top. You know, there's there's not too much wrong with that. I don't think. I mean, I'd probably uh, I may be more sensible doing something like what Manish would would probably go for, which is a, a do a put option on on that because I do think it will be. It will continue to be a bit volatile in the short term, but I think long term, it's uh, it's it's definitely kind of a, in a space that I, I'm bullish on, for example, like copper and that's its needs throughout the world. And also what I kind of mentioned about the pound and where that is probably going in the, in the over the next year or two. I'd be interested to know, Manish, would you, would you go further out of the money on something like this because it's more volatile or how would you play it? Yeah, I, I would, because it's because it's more volatile. You know, you can you need a higher safety safety margin, but at the same time, because it is volatile, you're going to get a higher option premium for it as well. So you can afford to have a lower strike price on this. So I, th- I think it's a good trade, Roger. Again, it's a bit like Adams, in which in that you know you're kind of looking at at a hedge, you know, potentially because you've got Meta on the one side, which is a classic growth stock with a bit of value. I know. But this is a classic value stock, yeah. right? It's got, you know, it's an old economy. It's got low multiples. It's got high dividend yield, but optically it's got high yield. But just be aware that that yield is also volatile because it's, you know, subjected to, yeah. to earnings. And, and actually, that's the other point, which its earnings are very, very sensitive to the copper price because it's a leveraged play on the copper price, essentially. And the copper price has actually been down, what was it, uh, down about 14, 15% this year. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's well. I think from its from its fifty two week high, it's about twenty five percent. I think yeah. I, have to, I have to double check. Yeah, yeah. So it's 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 it is down, and I guess that's related to the dollar because you have an inverse correlation when the dollar's strong, 
you know, copper and other other sort of basic material prices will be will be down. There is a negative correlation there. So that's the thing to watch out for. The risk factors there are copper price continuing to go down. It is volatile, so just bear that in mind. The dividend yield can drop off if earnings come down. But other than that, you know, from an overall portfolio play, it, I think it fits really nicely with the other stuff that you've got on there, which is which is more growth related. So, so yeah, again, it's the portfolio theme that we are we're kind of returning to, you know, added together, you know, we've got a bit of everything here, I think. Absolutely. Brilliant. Well, I guess that brings us to an end for, for this quarter. And so, yeah, it'll be interesting. I, as I said, we're recording this on Tuesday the 20th. We're going to try and get it released as, as quickly as possible before there's any more volatility and we look silly. And then the next one will be kind of just, yeah, around kind of Christmas time. So um, uh, any any ideas of what to expect from the markets over the next three months? Who knows? Short-term predictions are just, it's a bit of a fool's game, but who knows? You know, it depends on... But where the data takes us, I don't know. You know, September, October has traditionally been a bit of a rocky period. And, you know, if you've got lots of cash sitting around, it could well be a good period to start accumulating a value at this point. You oh, know? Be, be oh, patient and accumulate. Are there any investments that you've got your eye on that you're just wanting to see get to the right price before you before you go? Before you go I've, yeah, I've got a whole watch list of things, you know, individual stocks, ETFs. And so I've, I've always got something going on. You know, there are tech stocks on there. There's some industrial stocks, financial stocks. Uh, but, but generally, you know, global equity ETFs, I, I think, you know, with a bit more downside, you know, th- there could be opportunities. And, and of course, the best way to achieve that is doing things through options because you get you get paid to wait until prices come down to the level that you want to be accumulating at. So yeah, I've got, I've got a few things in my shopping list, which we can maybe discuss next time we meet. Definitely look forward to it. Adam, how about you? Yeah, I think I'm going to go bolder than that and say against all odds, I think the overall stock markets will improve before the end of the year because there'll be, a bit of false hope, like there's been in the re- I mean, there's been a there's been a bit of a, a bull run or a, a bull trap, if you want to see it as that. And then, you know, the, the markets have taken a fair haircut. I think there'll be some apparently good news on inflation before there's some bad news, because right now it's very very difficult to forecast. And if you see, I mean, we saw this a while ago. I think the print came in 0.2 below what everybody thought was expectations of inflation. And just that point too, then led to the markets putting on 10 or 15%. I think we'll get another positive print before the end of the year, and that'll take the markets forward. And then I think reality kicks in in the depths of winter, and the early next year will be, will be particularly difficult. But honestly, that's like throwing darts at a board, isn't it, really? So I think you're much better off to listen to what Manish said, I think, than me on that front, to be honest, Rod. Brilliant. Well, thanks a lot for coming on the show again and look forward to the next one. Thanks a lot, Rod. Cheers, Rod. Cheers. Cheers.